This week with Phase 2 of the Final Four of Season 4, as we hyped ad nauseum last week. I'm not going to talk too much about it here this week, because we are in the midst of the Final Four of Season 4. We got a ton of feedback about the Timothy Good episode last week, and I'm sure we're going to get a boatload of feedback regarding this week's episode with Webster Tarpley. Let me just throw in two plugs here for the remaining half of the Final Four of Season 4 for the folks who have not heard of them yet. First of all, next week on the program, the legendary and iconic Bud Hopkins finally arrives here on BOA Audio. We're going to be talking about his recently published memoir, Art, Life, and UFOs, a fantastic book which chronicles his remarkable and epic life. Trust me, it is another landmark interview here for BOA Audio. Then in two weeks, we wrap up the whole season with a massive guest. Every year, we try to end the season with a bang. This year, we go in practically nuclear with our season finale bang. Our guest will be the legendary and infamous John Lear. This is definitely going to be a must-hear interview for anybody interested in the world of esoterica. He talks about a whole bunch of different stuff. Of course, I'll preview that in a little bit on the program because we have so much to talk about here for this week's episode. As I said at the beginning, our guest is geopolitical genius Webster Tarpley, just an amazing mind. The guy is brilliant, and I enjoy talking to him so much. He's back here on BOA Audio. I'll have a little bit more to say about that right before the interview starts. But this is actually his return to the program for a jam-packed interview. And what I really like about Webster is he comes kind of from the, as I call it, Stanton Friedman school of interviewing where you pretty much ask a question, then just get the hell out of the way and let Webster rock and roll. So for those folks who dislike me, I know you're out there, and I'm not sure why you're listening, but you don't like me for some reason, that's cool. You'll be happy to know that this is probably the least I talk in any episode of the season. Webster just pours out the information here, and I pretty much sit back saucer-eyed and agog at what he has to say. Of course, I do ask some questions, but Webster definitely takes the floor here for this interview, and uh, I couldn't have asked for it any other way. Here is the thumbnail preview of what we're going to be talking about here in this hour-long conversation. We're going to hear about the financial crisis that's going on around the world right now, what to do to get out of it for just the regular folks and the world at large, how Barack Obama is, as Webster calls him, a banker's puppet, why the solutions offered by the Republicans to fix the financial mess are just as bad as the Obama plans, we're going to find out how the geopolitical landscape has changed in the last three years or so from a U.S. versus Middle East scenario to an America versus Russia-China scenario. Then we're going to talk about the 9-11 event and the 9-11 truth movement and why it seems like the truth movement has been derailed in the last few years. Webster has some fascinating insights on that. And we sort of close it all up here with the big question that's been haunting me 
for a while now. Are we past the point of trying to stop this new world order? Has the globalism thing won out? Are we just shit out of luck? We're going to ask Webster Tarpley, and he's going to give us his honest assessment. Yes, I know it is a political episode of the program, and we try to stay away from politics, but Webster Tarpley is really one of a kind. He is just an amazing speaker, an amazing researcher. He has charisma in buckets, and I love talking to him, so we got to have him on the show. And he is a superstar, which is why he's part of the Final Four of Season 4. And the most reassuring aspect of the whole interview is that Webster is pretty much critical of just about everyone. Barack Obama, George Bush, the Democrats, the Republicans, Ron Paul, everybody. So I have a feeling that no matter who you like, no matter who you voted for, no matter who you back in the political sphere here in America and around the world, they're going to get stomped on. And everybody is pretty much equally stomped on, courtesy of Webster Tarpley. If you're not into politics, I apologize but if you are into this whole scene, and I know a lot of people are, and you want to find out really what's going on in the geopolitical landscape of the world today, you want to check out this week's edition here with Webster Tarpley. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Webster Tarpley, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. The iconoclastic Webster Griffin Tarpley is an activist and historian, perhaps best known for his book George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, published in 1992. He is an 9-11 truth scholar and activist possesses an A.B. from Princeton in 1966, where he graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. He was a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Turin in Italy, and he has an M.A. in Humanities from Skidmore College. He's fluent in Italian, German, French, Latin, and Russian. A decades-long expert on international terrorism, his 1978 study for the Italian Parliament, Who Killed Aldo Mora, broke open the ownership of the Red Brigades by NATO's clandestine stay-behind networks. He's also the author of the masterful work 9-11 Synthetic Terror, now in its fourth printing, as well as two recent books on Barack Obama, Obama the Postmodern Coup, Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Barack H. Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His most recent work is a reissue and updating of his 1999 book, Surviving the Cataclysm, which deals with how to recover from the current global financial crisis, which was predicted in the original publication of the book. His website is www.tarpley.net, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net. Check it out. Now, before we start cooking here on the interview, I do want to plug one last thing, and it is of importance to those folks who are going to be enjoying this week's edition of the program. As I noted just a few moments ago, this is Webster's return to BOA Audio, but... If you were to go back into the seasonal archive, you would not find Webster Tarbley's interview in there. And if you pulled us up on iTunes via the BOA Audio podcast feed, Webster's interview is not in there either. That is because it is a lost BOA Audio interview. The gist of it is we conducted it back in the fall of 2005, dubbed it a special session because we talked about a lot of stuff that was too timely really to keep within the BOA Audio seasonal format, and we rolled it out on a special day. It was quite a to-do at the time. I really didn't even notice until I got in touch with Webster to bring it back on the program, and I went looking for the interview on BOA and couldn't find it, and that's when I realized this thing kind of fell out of the loop a few weeks after we posted it on BOA. So it's kind of like a lost interview, especially because this was in the fall of 2005, maybe two months after the program even started. We're talking season one era stuff here. And in the ensuing four years, we've picked up a lot of listeners who, chances are, have dug back into the archive and never even knew that this Webster Tarpley interview existed. Anyway, in light of Webster's triumphant return to the program, we've dug up that lost interview. 
it's really both a fascinating look back at the parapolitical scene of late 2005, as well as a timeless discussion on the nature of 9-11. We've got linkage to this interview on the show page for this week's episode of the program. I'm also going to stick it onto the BOA Audio podcast feed so folks can just download it via that methodology as well. So for those folks who are disappointed that we've only got one hour with Webster Tarpley, chances are you haven't heard the lost BOA Audio interview with Webster Tarpley. That's an hour and 20 minutes. So in total, it's really a two-hour and 20-minute conversation with Webster Tarpley, jam-packed with parapolitical and geopolitical stuff from really one of the most brilliant minds looking at the global political scene. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on July 29, 2009. Webster Tarpley, talking about the global financial crisis, geopolitics, and 9-11 on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Benall of America Audio. Our guest here this week is the awe-inspiring writer Webster Tarpley. He's the author of a number of books, of course, and uh, probably the best 9-11 book I've ever read, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, and he's the author of a re-release of his 1999 book, Surviving the Cataclysm, all about the financial crisis. He really uh, was on top of this way before anybody else was. Welcome back to the show, Webster. Great to be talking to you again. Thank you, and thank you for your kind words. Let me hasten to point out, though, that Surviving the Cataclysm is more, much more than a re-release. It's been brought up to date by a whole bunch of uh, material, which which has been written in, since the explosion of the current crisis, say, in the middle of 2007. So you're getting the snapshot of what was obviously headed for a catastrophe in 1988-99, right, in the wake of the long-term capital management hedge fund blowing up. But now uh, that's also then supplemented by what's what's going on today. And above all, a program to get out of it. Absolutely, yeah. That's really the important part. we got to get out of this thing. Now, you put the book out in uh, the late 90s, and you kind of foresaw this whole thing happening. Why didn't anybody try to stop this thing? I'm sure you, you've been wringing your hands here as it all unfolded. Well, uh, back in 1998, you had the so-called Asian contagion, which was really a dollar contagion. It was a crisis inside the world dollar credit system. And uh, that led then to the to the bankruptcy of the Russian government. It meant the bankruptcy of the IMF shock therapy government that uh, that had been installed in Russia under Yeltsin mm-hmm. and the and the oligarchs. So when the Russians uh, defaulted, they stopped payment on their treasury securities, the so-called GKOs. This led then to a very instructive event, which was the bankruptcy of long-term capital management, which is a hedge fund in Connecticut. And they speculated in derivatives, in options and futures, and the derivatives that were around then. And they blew a huge hole in the world banking system. It was a hole of many, many billion dollars, perhaps into the trillions. Nobody really knows, because uh, Greenspan came rushing in with a backdoor bailout, a kind of a crony bailout, mm-hmm. and papered this over. But now if you fast forward to our time, uh, it's the same story. It's a hedge fund or multiple hedge funds or investment banks acting like hedge funds speculating in derivatives that get you into this. That's the story on Bear Stearns. That's the story on Lehman Brothers. That's the story on Merrill Lynch. And the one that's been studied the most, I think, and the most instructive is AIG because AIG – Since they've taken the most money directly from the federal government, we know more about them. And we know that they were destroyed by derivatives, by these uh, what they call toxic securities, complex securities, in particular credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, and some others. And AIG 
even though it's an insurance company, set up a hedge fund in London, which then proceeded to sell $3 trillion of derivatives, more than the gross national product of France. And when it blew, that is what has hit the U.S. taxpayer the hardest, because they've already gotten about $180 billion out of the bailout, the so-called TARP. Uh, out of that, about 13 or $14 billion has gone to Goldman Sachs, who claim that they make profits and they're going to give bonuses to their executives, even though they were paid off to unwind their derivatives vis-a-vis AIG. So there it is in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, and this was caused by deregulation and privatization. In other words, free markets. The Chicago School, Austrian School, Milton Friedman, von Mises, von Hayek nonsense. Uh, the, the reactionary Republican line, which unfortunately many libertarians also accept uh, for uh, uh, economic policy, uh, it simply shows that, that the reason you have a depression is that the New Deal prohibitions, the New Deal uh, regulation in these markets had been uh, abolished. Because remember, derivatives were strictly illegal in the United States from 1936 until 1982. And then there was a gradual process of deregulation, which was with the help of Ronald Reagan, our hero, <laughs> plus uh, then uh, Wendy Graham and Phil Graham. And, but then uh, the Clinton administration people, Bob Rubin of Goldman Sachs and Citibank, and Larry Summers, who's now running the economic policy for Obama. So that's how, and, uh, that's how derivatives were brought back. And it's clear that brought down the system. That plus the abolition of Glass-Steagall, which means that the derivatives trading houses merged with the banks. So you have a monstrosity like J.P. Morgan, which is a, a hedge fund, basically, yeah. and, then, uh, and then the bank, right, Chase Manhattan underneath it. So there's your depression in terms of the financial panic side. Wow. See, there you go, folks. This is why I love Webster Charbley. Everybody else is playing checkers. He's playing chess. He knows what's going on better than anybody. Now, in the book, of course, you, as you said, outline you know, some of these ways to get out of this mess. But sort of let's take it down to a micro level. You know, we got average people here listening to the show. What should people be doing to get out of this, because it sounds like it might be getting worse. Well, the first thing is be political. I mean, don't kid yourself that you're going to have wonderful prosperity in a world which is going into the abyss of a world economic depression. In other words, you know, you can be a survivalist, you can collect, you know, seeds, and, and you can stock your pantry. And again, that's all fine. But the question is, survive to do what? Survive to be political. Survive to be an activist. Because otherwise, if, if this were Germany in 1933, and I said, well... You know, you can do fine in the coming 20 years. You know, there's this fellow Hitler running around, but don't worry about that. That would be really disingenuous, and I think the people that, that offer that as a, as, a, as a panacea, this is simply wrong. Well, and, and, and I think you've got to put the other stuff first. In other words, what are the political ways out of it? Yeah. Because if you tell somebody you can get out of it by growing things in your backyard, it's wrong. It's just it's unrealistic. It's, it's, a, it's a fool's paradise. Yeah. I mean, I, can, I do tell you in my book, obviously I have a chapter which says all the obvious things, right? Pay off your mortgage, get out of debt if you can, own the tools of your trade, computers, tools, things that you need yeah. for economic activity. Owning means owning. Have a gold hedge, obviously. Uh, you know, you've got to cushion yourself against possible hyperinflationary dangers, uh, some combination of uh, treasury securities with the, with the inflation protection built in. Right, the TIP bonds, be they marketable or uh, uh, the uh, savings bond version of that, some combination of those bonds with gold protects you from hyperinflation. 
own a home above all, own a home, own a car, own the tools of your trade. But that's that gets to be, you know, you get to the end of that quite quite quickly, and then you're left with the question of political action, and that's what I would urge people to think of. The idea that you're going to get out of this as an individual is just, uh, it's just a fool's paradise. <laughs> Now you're making me nervous here. <laughs> well, then, what's the political end to this? Then, what do you what do you suggest? You well, know, on what, right now you have the pro the following problem: you have Obama, and Obama, of course, is a Wall Street puppet. I've got two books about this. I tried to warn people in time. Obama is the biggest Wall Street puppet that we've seen, perhaps since Calvin Coolidge or or somebody like this, maybe Woodrow Wilson. And indeed, his parallels to Woodrow Wilson are actually quite strong. A pedantic professor presiding over a police state and involving you in, in foreign wars. That may well be uh, Obama. Of course, with Wilson, you didn't have this dimension of a, of a depression. For that, you'd have to go back to Grover Cleveland, I guess, would be the, the Wall Street puppet Democrat who, uh, who fills the bill for, for Obama. So you've got Obama, and, and what he actually represents is, is, frankly, the fascist corporate state. In other words, a state-sponsored, government-sponsored compulsory cartel for the purpose of driving down wages driving down production, but propping up these fictitious uh, securities, the derivatives in particular. The mission of the Obama administration is really a desperate attempt to prop up the $1.5 quadrillion derivatives bubble. And he's got approximately 23 to $24 trillion, as of the most recent count, that is available as a line of credit to try to bail out the $1.5 quadrillion, except that's obviously not going to work. In other words, it, it's... It's a, a bubble which is collapsing in, in a, a panic crash, and there's no really no power in the universe that could stop that from happening over over the next uh, several years. So with Obama again, it's it's if you if you look at the 24 trillion for the banks compared to the useful parts of his stimulus, when it did have useful parts, they're probably about say 300 billion in the stimulus. So this means that under Obama, the bankers, the Wall Street zombie bankers, are beating the people by a score of 80, and that's 8-0 to 1. Uh, so that's the problem with Obama. He's given up on the cram down. He, uh, he refuses to do anything to stop foreclosures. He rewards predatory mortgage lenders. He's in the business of union busting. He has busted the United Auto Workers. They've given up their wages and their benefits package. Their health care fund has been looted and transferred to Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. Uh, he's in the process of busting the American Federation of Teachers with his charter school plans. And that's really when Obama came on the scene saying, I'm a community organizer. What that means in practice is I'm a strike breaker. I'm a scab. Uh, my business, his family business, is union busting. And that is what he tried to do in Chicago with the Chicago Annenberg Challenge for education, of course, meaning bust the teachers union and then and then reform after that. So. Yeah. This is obviously not going to work, and it's futile, and we're going to go further and further into a depression. His health care plans are uh, a measure to gouge money out of Medicare, Medicaid, and the public treasury to prop up these insurance companies, which are bankrupt. AIG is an insurance company. It's yeah. bankrupt. The Hartford is bankrupt. They had to take $3.5 billion from the from the bailout, from the TARP. Uh, other companies like Allstate, like Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, Prudential, uh, and and others were in line for the for the top money, and apparently they went back to the uh, to the Federal Reserve because they didn't want the opprobrium of 
of getting money on the bailout. So this entire complex is, is absolutely bankrupt. Now, on the other side, though, who do we have? We have the reactionary Republicans, and their goal is also quite clear. They wish to destroy the social safety net. And that would be, it really goes really all the way from Arnold Schwarzenegger and the left wing of the Democratic Party to Ron Paul on the libertarian wing, I suppose some people would say. And it covers all of the ones in between. Uh, somebody like Romney, I think, is the most likely presidential candidate. And he's a hedge fund hyena. He's an asset stripper. He knows all about wrecking companies because he's he's done it itself. Now, with these people, the, the idea is simply they're raving about free markets. Um, if there's ever a myth in economics, it's the idea of a free market. Even Republicans don't talk about free market except when they're out of power. And they use it as a kind of slave ideology to mobilize a lot of people to come out and cut their own throats. Yeah. So the idea there is that they would like to uh, basically destroy, and they've, they've wanted this for, for decades. I mean, these are the Roosevelt haters, after all. They have wanted to destroy Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security in their own way, which is more or less to privatize them, uh, and then feast off, the, off the, re the remains of that. And that's what Bush tried to do. What we learned, though, from Bush is that his attempt to privatize Social Security failed because he did it under right-wing cover. Obama is now proceeding under left-wing cover to do much the same thing. So what it means is you're caught between you know, the Scylla and Charybdis, right? the devil and the deep blue sea. What do you do? The imperative is a New Deal alternative. In other words, economics is not a mystery. We know that the reactionary Republican approach would pitch you into a, a probably a deflationary crash. With Obama, it's more likely to be a hyperinflationary breakdown crisis. Isn't there... Uh, a rational form of economics, and indeed there is. It's called the American system of political economy. It's the method that goes back to, uh, well, to Governor Winthrop in Massachusetts Bay, to people like Benjamin Franklin, to Alexander Hamilton, Friedrich List in the 1830s and 1840s, Henry Carey, Abraham Lincoln, the populists of the 1890s, uh, and then the uh, the Roosevelt New Deal, and indeed the Kennedy period had, had many aspects of this. So that's actually the tradition. There's never been a free market in this country, not even, uh, you know, not even when they first stepped off Plymouth uh, on Plymouth Rock. Right? Just, it never existed. Yeah. And to talk about this is simply trying to dupe people. So what I'm trying to do with this book is to put forward a series of uh, program points, how you actually get out of a depression, because this is what is going to be needed. I'm afraid we're going to have to go through a catastrophic Obama administration we may then have to go through a catastrophic uh, Mitt Romney administration, oh, which boy. will be as bad or worse. But the question is, until you have a New Deal alternative, you won't get out of this depression because Obama will fail and Romney or whoever they put up will fail. So my message to progressives, in other words, people who consider themselves Democrats or uh, something, you know, people who think that they're to the left of Obama, which is really where you can you can really understand the enormity of what he's doing. Mm -hmm. You've got to engage now against Obama. If you let the right-wing Tea Party people do all the fighting, then Romney will take the White House with a program of uh, asset stripping that goes even beyond what, what Obama has done. And therefore, uh, what we've got to do is try to mount some kind of a primary challenge to Obama out of the Democratic Party in the, uh, in the coming months, uh, just to sum that part up. My, my formula is Obama equals Carter plus LBJ plus Nixon. And let me just explain this. Okay. 
Carter is, of course, the, he's the, the pilot project. I mean, he's the model for Obama. He was a puppet of the Trilateral Commission. He was talking about energy austerity, the need to consume less, uh, wrecking the social safety net, uh, destroying infrastructure projects, water projects, uh, and so on. And, of course, he gave – he turned the government over to Volcker, the banker's man, who got the Federal Reserve to jack up the interest rates, 22% prime rate for – Prime rate customers, the rest of us, that meant 30 or 35 percent or whatever it was at the time. Yeah. So Carter was a disaster. So Obama has all of the features of Carter, except that Carter didn't have any wars. Carter once boasted there was a whole year of the Carter presidency where not one uh, American was killed overseas in any kind of a combat operation or government-ordered um, um, counterinsurgency, whatever. Yeah. With Obama, of course, you don't have that because Obama has all the problems of Lyndon B. Johnson as well. He's got his Vietnam, which is now Afghanistan. He ran on that. Obama ran as a warmonger to the right of the rest of the democratic field, demanding the bombing of Pakistan and the escalation of the Afghanistan war. And he, he put himself really to the right of Hillary, to the right of McCain, even to the right of Bush on these things. And there was a bigger warmonger than any of them when he demanded the unilateral U.S. bombing of Pakistan and insisted on, on, on running on that. So that's the LBJ side. Plus Nixon, the idea of preventive detention, of throwing somebody in jail with no due process, no habeas corpus, and so forth, really goes back to Nixon and the excesses of, um, let's say, the secret police, right? The, the police state angles on, on Obama are very, very heavy. I mean, ideas of cutting off the First Amendment, cutting off free speech, using uh, things like hate crime legislation to try to strangle political opposition on the Internet, muzzling the political opposition. So all of that means that Obama is a, um, he's a combination of the worst of Carter with the worst of Lyndon B. Johnson and the worst of Nixon. So at that point, it's going to be imperative, unless the Democratic Party is going to collapse completely, that somebody come forward and challenge Obama as soon as possible in the primaries as an alternative. With Carter, it was Senator Ted Kennedy, who, who uh, despite all of his chappaquiddick problems, really gave Carter a run for his money. It meant that, of course, Carter, Carter lost the election, but the, um, otherwise the, the Democratic Party probably would have been out of business at that point. That might have, some people would say that would have been a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> but the, the thing is, if you don't oppose Obama, you're going to have a generation or more of extreme reactionaries. And that's, remember, that's what happened. You had Reagan one, Reagan two, and Bush the elder. The other thing that Carter did was to create the modern religious fundamentalist movement, which had dominated politics well into the current decade. That got going under Carter. That was something that, that was a kind of an abreaction against Carter. So I think it's time for people to oppose Obama. For Republicans, let me also say a word for them. If you if you if you think of yourself as a as a right winger or a conservative, the kind of stuff that the Republican Party is going with is not effective. And you can see Obama is eager to embrace people like Limbaugh, Hannity, Newt Gingrich. In other words, these reactionaries, these uh you know, extreme well, they're not even conservatives. They're actually right wing radicals because what they propose is it has nothing to do with the status quo, and it's really a, a very sharp departure from, from the way things have been in this country for, for 60, 70, 80 years. Obama's very anxious to make you think that it's a choice between Obama and Limbaugh, because that helps prop up Obama, makes him look good by comparison. 
as long as you go with this raving anti-government, um, all government programs are bad, government is evil, and so forth, yeah. this is this is a it's a failure. I would recommend for the Republican Party be what you once were, be the party of industrial capitalism. In other words, come out and advocate the reindustrialization of the United States. Don't say that the Detroit auto industry should be destroyed. Say that it should be converted to things like tractors or uh, high-speed rail, maglev rail, or uh, airframes for the space uh, uh, exploration, or indeed nuclear reactors or other kinds of turnkey uh, large-scale industrial facilities, capital goods for export. Uh, advocate a, a modern energy policy. Here, one, one example. Congressman Mike Pence of Indiana, speaking for some House Republicans, came out with an energy program of building 100 nuclear reactors. I think that's exactly what the Republican Party should be advocating, except he said 100 reactors in 20 years. That's a joke. Not 20 years, Congressman, 20 months. If you don't want to have your electricity grid collapse. But that's, that's some idea. In other words, if the, re, if the Republicans were advocating something more in the line of industrial capitalism, they would be much, much more successful. Let me also remind people, Eisenhower, not highly regarded by a lot of Republicans today, was actually a giant in, term, in these terms. Uh, the interstate highway system is an Eisenhower program. And without this, we'd be even worse off than we are now. Obviously, now it's 50 years later, we've got to rebuild this. But the interstate highway system, absolutely indispensable. Eisenhower laid the basis for the moonshot and the space program by founding NASA. It's, it goes back to, uh, to Eisenhower. The other thing he did was to complete the, uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway, which is a huge infrastructure project that keeps large parts of the Great Lakes uh, going even to this time. The Republicans have, except for this Pence proposal, they're proposing basically zero in terms of the, the urgent task of rebuilding the crumbling infrastructure of, of this country, right? And all this stuff about, you know, uh, more tax cuts for the rich and all the rest of this. this it's just a non-starter. So this is, this is where we are today. We've got the, the fascist corporate state with Obama in a very, very specific sense. And then on the other side, this, uh, this Chicago school, Austrian school nightmare with, uh, again, I think Mitt Romney being the, being the likely one. So I'm trying to urge people to, to give us a third alternative, which would be the traditional New Deal. Obviously, the New Deal had a lot of things in it that didn't work, so we've got to be aware of that. But generally, the spirit and many of the concrete measures can be used today as the basis for a new program. Okay. Let's jump back a little bit to Obama, because I, I was listening to a lot of what you had to say you know, during the election and stuff like that, and after the election. For starters... It seemed like, you know, the Bush cabal had a kind of a stranglehold on the power. How did, you know, the other side even wiggle their way in there and end up getting the power back? Well, Bush, of course, was a puppet, and I argued the whole time. Bush is a puppet. Yeah. Bush is not the mastermind of 9-11. Bush was scarcely informed in advance that something big was going to happen. And if he was, he was told, make sure you obey orders tomorrow, Sonny, or, <laughs> or you won't be around very long. Cheney, also a puppet. The idea of the, is, is simply this. The imperialist, uh, well, the, the, the ruling elite at the highest levels know that you cannot keep going with the same ideological profile indefinitely, ad infinitum, especially when it's not working. And this is the idea that you could take 9-11 and then have the global war on terrorism 
and the attack on Iraq, followed then by the attack on some pl other places, maybe Iran, and expect to have that work. It will not work. And it was already failing by 2005, 2006. The backlash against that in the world, I guess, was, was the crowning moment was when Putin came to the, uh, the Munich uh, Wehrkunde, the German security conference that's held at the beginning of each year, and said, you know, this is a, a naked attempt at, at hegemonism, domination of the world, which reminds us of the Third Reich. Once Putin says that, then you realize that people have, have caught on to what you're, what you're doing. Yeah. So they realize you can't just be Johnny OneNote forever. You have got to reverse your field, especially if you're failing. So by 2006-2007, the other group, the non-neocon group, because this is Obama is not the neocons. Yeah. Believe me, this is now Brzezinski's big new Brzezinski who ran the Carter National Security Council. At that point, Robert Gates was his office boy. Gates today runs the Pentagon. That's one very obvious connection. But Zbigniew Brzezinski, Samuel Huntington, who just died now in December, Joseph Nye, the main soft power theoretician, and these organizations like the um, International Crisis Group, which is pretty much money from Soros, ideas from Brzezinski. Again, the soft power group, the people who like to do color revolutions, people power coups, velvet revolutions, destabilizations. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, terrorism fits into this, right? This Rabia Kadir from Fairfax, Virginia, who is somehow implicated in the, the deaths of hundreds of Chinese in, in Xinjiang province, or indeed the, uh, the attempted color revolution, the green revolution in Iran. This is, this is the kind of stuff that they like. So their argument was that the neocons were failing, that the neocons were a bunch of bunglers because they were so fixated on Israel and the Middle East and oil that they were losing track of the big picture. And the big picture, as Biden has said, is China, Russia, India. The question of world domination is not decided in the Middle East. It's simply not. The Middle East is not the key to the world. The key to the world is what happens in Eurasia as a whole. What happens at the level of China, India, Russia? And above all, the, the big neocon complaint was, the, the complaint against the neocons was, you bunglers have allowed the Shanghai Cooperation Organization with Russia, China, and the Central Asian states to come together and you've just ignored that. You're so fixated on Iraq, and then you're fixated on what you think you're going to do with Iran. You may remember Brzezinski came forward at the beginning of 2007 and said, there's a plan to stage a false flag event and get a war going with Iran. And if we do that, we will be finished, because we will be at war then with Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. We'll have no allies, and we'll be finished. So you're basically what he's basically saying is, look, people, we are isolated, we are hated, we are bankrupt, our military is at the point of collapse. So we have to reverse our field. We've got to drop all of this vindictive, right-wing, global war on terror, racist, anti-Muslim propaganda. We've now got to put on the smiling face of human rights, women's rights, nuclear non-proliferation with left cover now. Yeah. And then this idea of humanitarian intervention, right, pushed by Kushner of, of, of France, and, among others which is the idea that if you have a government like, um, say, Burma, if they don't deliver the food aid to their people fast enough, then you can overthrow them because they haven't been, been efficient. And that's really, that transition occurred during 2007. In other words, Bush and Cheney were lame ducks with no power. They were simply people sitting there, right? They were just an, an optical illusion, really. By December of 2007, when you had the national intelligence estimates saying 
that there was no Iranian nuclear program. In retrospect, that was it. Cheney had made his last attempt to start something with Iran in August, September of 2007. And this was the famous rogue B-52. I had put out a statement in July saying Cheney determined to strike in U.S. this summer. It was put out, it was in the Washington, uh, the Rock Creek uh, Free Press here in Washington, D.C. And then, at the end of August, an even more urgent one, the so-called Kenny Bunkport warning, saying that, that Cheney, an action by Cheney is now imminent, and if anything goes off anywhere in the world, blame Cheney, don't blame the ones that he's talking about. And then within a couple of days, the B-52 flew from North Dakota to Louisiana, completely outside of the command and control of the Air Force. In other words, the rogue network, for which Cheney is also a spokesman, not a, not a leader, had then basically hijacked the B-52 with six nuclear cruise missiles on board. The Israelis were about to attack Syria at the beginning of September, but when this question of the B-52 became known, a lot of people died in the process. There's a whole story there that, that really ought to be told someday. But as it went up the chain of command into the intelligence community, the word, the word was no, 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 no. We, we don't want this. We have other plans for Iran. If we get involved with Iran, as Brzezinski had said, that will essentially mean the collapse of the Anglo-American world domination. So yeah. everything has changed. And the, the changes are then the independence of Kosovo, meaning we're, we're focusing more on Serbia, Russia. We're going to start jabbing at them. The Polish missile crisis, which has started under Bush but continuing now under Obama. And then the big one is the Georgian attack on Russia about a year ago, August of, of 2008, which it shows you how insane these people are. They, they don't want the U.S. to be directly involved, but they'll, they'll use kamikaze puppets. Imagine Georgia attacking Russia, tiny yeah. little country, this huge mass. If anybody's crazy enough to order that, they're crazy enough to do anything. And therefore, I think that's, that's pretty much where we are now. So the new wave is now color revolutions, what you're seeing in Iran. In other words, the, the, the argument of this group is to say, why attack Iran and get yourself into a war with Iran? If you do that, you're, you're guaranteeing that that regime will survive in its current form. Why not make Iran into an expendable puppet and use it against other countries that you want to destroy? And I'm, <laughs> unfortunately, but for my the purposes of this analysis, the confirmation is that in the Friday prayers about two weeks ago, the CIA faction, the Rafsanjani Musavi coup faction, the, the green faction, yeah. was chanting death to Russia, death to China. That's the Brzezinski program. That is the future they have for Iran. That Iran, instead of being a target for the U.S. at great expense to the U.S. with you know, terrible regional consequences in particular, Iran is going to become a tool of the U.S. and be used against China, say cutting off the oil to China, with Russia picking fights across the Caspian Sea, where the Russians are at the north and the Iranians at the south, and it's full of oil. So fight the Russians there. I, I think you get the idea. So yeah. we're now in a totally new world. People who are still thinking there's going to be an attack on Iran, just you're not reading the papers. There's no attack on Iran. Iran is going to be attacking others. But the attack that is going on is the one that Obama demanded, an attack on Pakistan, which happens every day. Uh, Pakistan being a country that's two and a half times bigger with actually having nuclear weapons. And I, I actually, let me just add one more thing, just okay. to round out the absurdity of this. In my book, Barack H. Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, I have a hypothetical, a, a fictitious uh, sort of um, imagined conversation 
between Brzezinski and the Iranian leadership. And in this conversation, Brzezinski says, if you want nuclear weapons, we'll be glad to give you nuclear weapons, provided that you promise to use them only on the Russians. And that goes, that goes back to what Brzezinski told the Iranian Prime Minister Bazargan in 1979, November 1979. This is now Khomeini, Iran, right? So Brzezinski's talking to the Khomeiniak Prime Minister, and he says, we want to give you all the military technology that the Shah had ordered. We want to keep delivering to you because we have a common enemy to your north. And it's the Soviets. It's Russia. Remember that with Brzezinski, the invariant is that he's a petty Polish aristocrat. He hates Russia, and he wants to, to destroy the Russian Federation, carve it up into five or six pieces, as, as Putin has, has warned in public on at least one occasion. I've just been in Germany talking to one of the leading uh, German experts on this entire region, and he's telling me that um, Iran already has nuclear weapons and that these have been delivered on the orders of the U.S. through A.Q. Khan of Pakistan. Right? The, again, Pakistan, the ISI, A.Q. Khan, yeah. largely a co-production of the U.S. and the British. So A.Q. Khan, at some point in the past, I don't know when, has proliferated four or five nuclear bombs, probably not that large, but substantial in any case. So Iran already does have some kind of a nuclear retaliatory force. And I take that to mean that, that this entire business about who's going to attack Iran and when is, at least in the intentions of London and Washington, New York, there will be no such attack. Now, the Israelis are going to grouse and complain, and they're going to try to use you know various kinds of haggling and, and blackmail, and so forth. But I don't think that that's the policy of, of the main imperialist centers. I really don't. Because if, if, if this happened, this would be a great defeat for the U.S. and the British. R rather, the idea is use Iran against the Russians and the Chinese. Interesting, interesting. Don't listen to all that scaremongering. I remember when we were all supposed to die in an ice age. Then we were supposed to starve to death from overpopulation. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Kids, the simple fact is we're going to be taken out by a super antibiotic-resistant flu bug. You see, yeah, this is all quite a change in what we were talking about the last time you and I chatted, way back in 05. Uh, well, at that time it was real, uh, and, and indeed oh, yeah. it does change. And I tried to show that the policy changed, and you could see it happening during 2007. Again, the last gasp was this rogue B-52. There was also the visit of Ahmadinejad in October of 07. This was the really last gasp. Ahmadinejad showed up at Columbia University in the middle of an absolute circus and zoo because they were all the the, the uh, Zionist groups in New York City were protesting Ahmadinejad, the Jewish Defense League and so forth, mm -hmm. so that was out in force. If there had been an attempt to liquidate Ahmadinejad at that point, that could have precipitated some kind of a, of a war or an attack or some form of, of hostility leading towards towards war, but that was not done. So... That was it, October 07, and then by December 07, the National Intelligence Estimate saying there is no nuclear weapons program to attack. Interesting, yeah. See, what you're saying is that if there's any sort of conflict with Russia and China and stuff like that, it's going to be done covertly in a way. We're not going to see... Well, yes and no. In other words, the, the, the policy is supposed to be that the U.S. does not become directly involved. <laughs> At the same time, though, the involvement of the U.S. is so obvious that you're not fooling anybody. Yeah. Again, take this Rabia Kadir. She's, she gets money from the U.S. government through the, the National Endowment for Democracy. She gets half a million dollars. So this seems to have been a big factor in this, in this murder spree 
in uh, Urumqi in, in northwest China. And again, everybody knows that Bush had a $400 million program to overthrow the Iranian government with regime change. And that's what you're seeing now with Mousavi and the Green Revolution in the streets of Iran, right, and the Twitter and the, and the whole media hype around this. Uh, you've also had, as long as you've got Biden on the scene, it's very hard to, to have a disciplined policy because Biden shoots his mouth off so much. Oh, yeah. Biden has now been to Georgia and Ukraine, and he's told both of them, we guarantee you we're going to support you joining NATO. Think about what that means. You want to fight and die for the survival of the fascist madman Saakashvili in Georgia, who's now an aggressor? He's crazy enough to attack Russia, of all people. And then this gang of kleptocrats in Kiev, Ukraine, who are IMF agents and NATO agents, you're going to fight and die for them? This is crazy, but that's, that's the policy of the Obama administration. And Obama, he went to, uh, to Moscow, he put on this deception act. I don't think he fooled anybody. And the few that he did fool have now had their eyes opened by, by Biden. And the big question is, what about that Polish missile crisis? Because uh, that's going to be something very, very uh, dangerous. And Obama really has not repudiated that at all so far. So the goal would be, the dream scenario, if you will, is the following. The U.S. and the British are attempting to cut off the access of China to oil and raw materials, oil in the Persian Gulf, Arabian Gulf area, and then also oil places like Sudan, minerals in places like Zimbabwe uh, and Africa in general, because the Chinese have been going in with basically a 50-50 deal which looks better than the Anglo-American, you know, 70-30 or 80-20 with, with London and New York get, getting the lion's share. Yeah. So what's happening is the Indian Ocean, the arc of crisis, the Indian Ocean literal, is now a very big uh, focus of conflict. And that's what you see in Pakistan. That's what you see in uh, a place like Burma with the Suchi carnival going on, the, the U.S. and the British trying to kick out the uh, military regime and put in this Su Chi, would be the, she would be the Kori Aquino of, uh, of, of Burma, and all of that going on. The goal of that is essentially that if the Chinese are cut off from oil and minerals across the Indian Ocean, you'd then have a situation where the Chinese would be sitting at home looking across the border into Russian Siberia, where there's lots of oil, lots of minerals, and few Russians, and maybe a war could be arranged there. In other words, World War III between Russia and China. This would be the dream scenario for Soros, Brzezinski, Nye, and company, would be eventually to get to that. It's very similar to Sir Neville Chamberlain. Remember, his policy was to build up Hitler, to strengthen Hitler, and then send him east against Stalin with the idea that he'd get rid of both of them that way. Yeah. And of course, it didn't work. It blew up in their face at a certain point. The current U.S. policy is absolutely guaranteed to blow up because everybody knows this. Putin has said Brzezinski wants to divide Russia into five separate countries. So he knows. Yeah. Uh, the Chinese, the thing that they've done recently is they've gone into Sri Lanka, right? Ceylon, sitting right in the middle of the Indian Ocean, the centerpiece of the whole thing. The U.S. and the British had fomented the Tamil Tigers, Tamil Tigers terrorist organization headquartered in London, interestingly enough. And these are the people that had popularized suicide bombing and indeed female suicide bombing. So they're a very ugly gang of butchers. Uh, and this had been to destabilize one of the leading third world countries starting in 1975. 
So that group has been wiped out now by the, the military uh, of Sri Lanka with Chinese assistance. So the Chinese have gone in to Sri Lanka and helped the, the government there to reassert their authority over this terrorist organization. In the last phases of that war, when it was clear that the, the Tamil Tigers were about to be annihilated, we had the British Foreign Secretary Miliband, joined by the French Foreign Minister Kushner, trying with every means at their disposal to save the Tamil Tigers from annihilation, demanding a ceasefire, demanding humanitarian intervention, don't wipe them out, so that they could come back again and kill. This was one of the crudest examples of the pro-terrorist policies of, of these NATO countries, and, and the U.S. obviously backing, backing up the whole thing. So there's a kind of a, an underground war going on in these places around the Indian Ocean, and it includes Bangladesh, Pakistan, as we've said, Sudan, Zimbabwe, Thailand, Burma, the islands, right? Not just Sri Lanka, but also uh, Madagascar, the Comores, the Seychelles, yeah. on and on and on. Anytime there's a coup in any of that area, look at whether it's pro-Chinese or pro-Anglo-American, and you'll basically get an idea of what's actually happening. Interesting, interesting. Now, I want to jump to a different subject here just a little bit. As I said, outstanding book, 9-11 Synthetic Terror. Uh, last I heard, it was in its fourth printing here we are, we've talked almost 45 minutes, we haven't even really touched on 9-11. Feels like the whole 9-11 truth thing's losing momentum a little bit, or it's moved to the back burner. What do you think of all that? Well, it clearly has, and, and it was, a lot of it was the mistake made by a lot of 9-11 truth activists uh, during 2007. They decided to throw their lot in with uh, established politicians. Um, let me start with Kucinich. Kucinich made public promises. He went further than some others. Kucinich promised that he would have hearings on 9-11, and he also promised, in response to questions from Leland Lehrman in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, in October of 2007, Kucinich also promised that he would hold hearings into the rogue B-52, which had never been mentioned in these Democratic uh, or Republican candidate debates that were going on uh, then. And Kucinich did not deliver. He simply didn't. He didn't fulfill those promises. Rather, what Kucinich did, even before the Iowa caucuses, he threw his support to Obama. And I think generally the, the Kucinich uh, campaign was a great disappointment in the sense that it didn't it didn't use that national forum to say any of the big things that should have been said. He had time to talk about the joys of vegetarianism. He talked about flying saucers but nothing about 9-11 or, or the Rogue V-52. So I think that knocked out about a third of the movement. The other part, I think, is Ron Paul. Ron Paul made extravagant promises, but not as publicly, I think, as as, uh, as Kucinich did, yeah. that he would do something for 9-11 Truth. And then when he was asked about 9-11 Truth in one of the debates, he said things like, um, the 9-11 Truth thesis is bizarre, it's preposterous, that the fact that his supporters were associated with this idea was an embarrassment to him, that they should stop doing what they're doing, and so forth. So that was a pretty blanket uh, repudiation. Yeah. Uh, and again, he had he had gotten a lot of money and a lot of support from people based on the idea that he was going to take a stand on this, which he did not do. And then generally, uh, what was left over after that was, I think, overwhelmed by the Obama hysteria, and then, of course, you, ha you also had a, s a significant amount of, um, how can we say, misleadership. In other words, a lot of, a lot of wreckers came in out of nowhere uh, in 
06, 07 in particular, and uh, began to assert, uh, you know, their uh, attempt to, to to get control of this. And some of the websites that existed deteriorated rapidly, and uh, a lot of people coming in with no names and no faces, and with people be hiding behind screen names without any recognizable identity, so you never knew who they were. This was a problem at the beginning of 9-11 Truth, when you had a lot of anonymous discussions and list listservs where people were always, you know, hiding behind fake names. So uh, I think at this point, 9-11 Truth as a movement is pretty much in ruins, and the degree to which there used to be conferences going on, I think that has has collapsed pretty pretty significantly. There's also a political reason for this. We're now in a world depression. Uh, you can't go to a, a worker in a breadline or living in an Obamaville, right, a Hooverville, except now they're Obamaville. <laughs> you can't go to somebody and say, buddy, let me tell you about Building 7 when he's waiting for his uh, his bowl of soup you know, from the second harvest or whatever it is. It, it, the, the world has really changed. Now, I would recommend that we, we maintain vigilance, and I'll tell you exactly what it is. Obama and false flag, uh, and why we're now in the, in danger of a new false flag, I think is, is something people should, should ponder. Uh, Obama has now fallen below 50%. We are now, uh, here in, uh, July, August of the first year of Obama's term. If we look back to July, August of the first year of the previous president's term, first term, Bush, yep. we're back to the time that, uh, that 9-11 is being prepared. And you've got to look now for straws in the wind. You've got to in increase your drill monitoring and exercise monitoring. Uh, look for straws in the wind. Look for, uh, you know, anything to do with, say, the resurfacing of the 9-11 Commission or, I don't know, articles about the Secret Service and how they operate. Just look at all of the things that might somehow be connected to this or, or in new ways, right? It, you can be, it could be right-wing domestic terrorism, right, Napolitano otherwise known as totalitariano, has <laughs> talked about that. Or, again, the new hit list, which is not Iraq-Iran anymore, not so much Arabs, but Pakistanis. Uh, Arabs, certainly if they're Sudanese, would come into play, or maybe Chinese, or maybe even Russians. It all depends on how crazy the, these terrorist controllers uh, are. So I would say, with Obama falling below 50%, the, the danger of false flag now radically uh, increases. Also notice... Uh, as I write in these books, uh, Obama, the Postmodern Coup, and the Unauthorized Biography, the two separate ones, Andrew Sullivan of the Atlantic Monthly wrote about Obama in December of 2007. He complained that the use of false flag was now foreclosed for the U.S. ruling class because nobody believed Bush. Bush was so hated that if a bomb went off somewhere and Bush came out and said, I can tell you country X did it, Sullivan writes, people wouldn't believe him. They'd blame him for being an incompetent, or they'd say, you did it yourself as a wag the dog. The, the ruling elite now believes that Obama has credibility in the world, that if some explosion goes off, Obama can say, country X did it. So uh, that's dangerous. I don't think it's true, but they think it's true. So that means they might act on that belief. So I think right now... Uh, it is really time to look back at this and think of what we've learned. We basically know how 9-11 was done, and, and I point to the 25 drills, uh, either on that day or just completed or in advanced stages of preparation. Look at that in my book, right? There are 25-plus drills, and if you know that, you can see that virtually everything that happened is the product of 
of such a drill. The time-tested idea is if you want to have a coup, you use a drill as a cover story, and then you redirect the drill. A couple of examples. One is the attempt to assassinate Reagan. There's a presidential succession drill, Nine Lives, going on the next day. So it, it may be that the uh, looks very much like the, the hit on Reagan was organized through some kind of a drill under the cover of it. Uh, the other one is this movie that we've seen now about the attempt of von Stauffenberg to assassinate Hitler and have a coup in Germany. How did he do it? He did it under the cover of a drill. In this case, Operation Valkyra, which was an, uh, a drill prepared to reassert uh, Hitler's control over Germany and occupied areas, but that was then redirected into the opposite, just in the same way that Operation Mongoose in the 60s was supposed to be the assassination of Castro, was redirected towards the assassination then of, of Kennedy. So there's no doubt about how these things have to be done, because you're using resources that are so big and so important that you can't mobilize them unless you've got the cover of a drill. And then you make the small changes, you flip it live, you go live, you redirect the drill, and then you you get these these huge tragedies. So that is what you've got to take with you. In other words, that's the portable aspect of 9-11. If you didn't learn that, you didn't learn anything of permanent value. Yeah. Now, you know, you've been sort of following this whole geopolitical scene for decades, and it just keeps degenerating. To you as a person, do you ever lose hope that you're preaching to the choir and, and the rest of the people are sheeple, you know, to, to use that awful phrase that a lot of people use, that, that, you know, we're screwed, I guess is the best way to put it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you and I kind of know what's going on, but most of the other people are talking about John and Kate plus eight and Michael Jackson and stuff like that. And sometimes you wonder, at least I do, that is, is all lost, I guess, is the point of uh, the question. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it that way at all. I mean, first of all, remember that, that the stuff you see around you is a, is a highly decadent uh, society, and, and you've, you've got to look at the climate of ideas in the U.S. or the English-speaking world as, as very much of a, it's a, it's a self-prejudiced sample. So that's, that's one thing. I mean, look at, look at Sri Lanka, right? They just did something actually quite important. And I think if you look around the world, if you extend your gaze into the third world, developing countries, uh, the governments of India and China and Brazil have just said no to Obama at the Group of Eight in, uh, in Italy uh, on this idea that uh, they should be strangled in the name of cap and trade, right? That the this entire demagogy about global warming and the carbon footprint, that the yeah. goal of, was obviously to use that to destroy the economic development of China, India, Brazil, and, and these other uh, developing countries. And they've said no to it. So there are, there are good things going on. You've just got to, got to look carefully uh, so that you, that you find it. The other thing, of course, is in the U.S., uh, we're still living, even though we now have 10% official unemployment and real unemployment of about 20 to 25%, we've got 10% of the people who, with home, home uh, mortgages facing foreclosure or, or in arrears. We've got about 11% of the population living on food stamps. We still have not gotten into true depression politics, uh, institutional crisis, and, and, and so forth. So I think we still have uh, a chance to do that. I mean, quite simply, you don't know, right? It's, it's always possible to, to, you can make an argument that the world is lost, right? That would be the, the pessimism of the intelligence. But what you're always left with is the optimism of the will, the imperative that you have to do good 
you have to fight evil, and you've got to be active and do it. And again, just looking after yourself is not enough. <laughs> in other words, it's got to be to survive for a purpose, and the purpose would, I think, be political. And uh, you know, the, the, let me I just tick off this five-point program. You got to do things like wipe out derivatives, right? Slap a tax, a Tobin tax on derivatives, one percent. That basically wipes them out within a short period of time. You got to outlaw hedge funds. You've got to stop foreclosures for five years. You've got to uh, re-regulate financial markets. You've got to stop Goldman Sachs from, from doubling the price of oil in the next couple of months, as they'd like to do. The second thing, then, is to seize the Federal Reserve. Indeed, nationalize it, turn it into a Bureau of the Treasury, and start issuing credit at interest rates that are set by public law. House, Senate, President, that's a law. Zero percent federal credit as a part of this effort to get out of a world economic depression. And then uh, you've got your infrastructure projects that need to be ready to go. You're going to need a 1,000 new hospitals. You're going to need 50,000 miles of maglev rail. You're going to need 100 of the most modern nuclear reactors within a couple of years. You've got to rebuild the interstate highway system. You've got to rebuild the entire water system, sewage systems, the really big works of, of infrastructure and, and public works that have to be there, plus then the three science drivers. You've got to get going with a space program for the exploration, colonization, and indeed industrial production on the moon and Mars and other nearby objects. You've got to have a high-energy physics program focusing on thermonuclear fusion power, but open to other variations as they prove to be viable, and you've got to have an open mind about that. And then biomedical. The only way to save money on health care is to find cures. If you cure cancer, you've saved a lot of money. right? If you cure Absolutely. heart disease, then you've done that too. Third point is the uh, social safety net has got to be increased, right? People thought they had 401ks, IRAs. These are gone. The Social Security benefit should probably be doubled uh, through a series of very rapid increments so that it actually becomes something you can live on. And, again, the medical care side of it, if you thought you had insurance with AIG or the Hartford or these other bankrupt companies, they, they're not going to be there. So you've got to find a way that avoids the genocide that Obama represents and the uh, sort of, you're, you know, you go die for the free market, the Republican approach, something down the middle, some form of Medicare for all, I think would be the, probably the best way to think about it. Then finally, you've got to get the world economy going with a world economic conference that actually proposes monetary reform, fixed parities, gold settlement among the leading uh, trading blocks, and, uh, and the idea being to restart capital goods production in the U.S., Japan, and Western Europe, or Europe in general, and, and start shipping that into Africa, South Asia, Latin America. In other words, the, the, uh, the unfinished business of humanity, which is, is third world or developing sector development. So there's, there's plenty to fight for, and, and people will be receptive to these things increasingly. Um, a lot of people who go around talking about free market today uh, do so because they think they have money and they'll continue to have money. When, they are, when they're on the unemployment line or the food stamp line, they will drop all that nonsense about the nanny state, and they will be interested in, in real solutions, not just uh, slogans. Absolutely. Now, I know you got to get running here soon, so let's, uh, let's just do the plug and the thanks. Uh, what do you have coming up? Uh, obviously, Surviving the Cataclysm just re-released. People can pick that up. Uh, go to the website, tarpley.net. Actually, please, go to uh, Amazon.com is the best place to find these things. You can get it through my website, but I don't, I don't sell it there. Amazon.com okay. uh, will get you Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide to the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History. That's individual and, above all, the political side. 
plus uh, Obama, the postmodern coup, and Barack H. Obama, the unauthorized biography. Those are all at Amazon, as indeed uh, 9-11 synthetic terror made in USA. And again, if you don't know what happened on 9-11, you're, you're way behind your time. We're going to have the we may have the next one. So uh, learn that this was done through exercises, drills, and, and maneuvers and, uh, and related things. And it's a war provocation coming out of the U.S. intelligence community. And again, if you don't know that, you don't know anything. Absolutely. Outstanding book. Anything else you want to plug here or uh, we should roll into the thanks? Uh, blah, blah. I guess I, I would recommend uh, the Alex Jones film, The Obama Deception. I, you can see me in that. And people interested in my website, I'm going to be upgrading that over the next couple of months. So it'll be more active. You can find more things there. Awesome, awesome. Now, I know we're up against the clock, so we'll uh, wrap it up here. Webster, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. I love listening to you. I love talking to you. I hope we can have you back on again in the near By future. By all means. Of course, the website is tarpley.net. The man is a geopolitical genius. And, uh, he pretty much laid out for you what to be looking for in the future and what may be coming up down the line and, and very frightening stuff, but we have to be informed and we have to be vigilant, as he said, and, and don't lose hope. That's the important part, because sometimes you want to get down on what's going on in the world. There you go. Get active or get radioactive. That hasn't changed. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks again for coming on the show, Webster. Bye-bye. That does it for this week's edition of VOA Audio Season 4. Big, big thanks, of course, to Webster Tarpley for coming back on the show. Always love talking to Webster Tarpley, riveting stuff. I'm really looking forward to having him back on the show in the future to reflect on what we've been talking about here this week and to see where things may be headed in the future. You can find out more from him at the website www.tarpley.net, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we're only going to do two emails here this week, try and speed the process along just a little bit, tighten up the end of the program some. I am bumping an email that I had been planning to read for the last couple of weeks. I promise I will get it in next week on the final BOA Audio listener feedback of the season. But until then, we've got an international listener and we've got someone with some technical difficulties. So we'll take care of those folks here on this week's segment. The first email comes from way down in Tasmania, Australia, from a man by the name of Gerard, and here's what he has to say. Just listen to the Timothy Good episode. Great stuff. Amazing info. It would really be great to hear more about the underground base situation. Here in Tasmania, we have had our fair share of unusual happenings. My cousin claims to have seen a craft emerge from a spot very close to the shore. Some very large craft have been spotted over the Bass Strait. Makes one wonder. I have seen some strange stuff myself, and have always wondered where the line between Earth energies and the UFO phenomena stands. I realize there are many bandwidths that we can't see, as there are many sightings we can't prove. It would be great to listen to a show where a kind of blending could occur, such as a spiritual philosopher and an earthly UFO dude could thrash out something tangibly subjective, if you get my meaning. Oh yeah, during the show there is some strange tonal shift from the guest's voice to your own. The treble is way up on your voice. Couldn't flatten the tone out a bit, could you? My ears literally crackle sometimes. Best regards, Gerard, in Tasmania, Australia. First of all, thanks for writing in, Gerard. I am humbled and blown away that we have a listener all the way down there in Tasmania. Awesome stuff. I'll work backwards here on your email. The tonal shift. I'm going to really try to dig into the process of recording BOA Audio next season 
and make some improvements. I will be honest with you, we've been using the same style and technology since season one, and it is getting a little old here. So it's time maybe to look at a new methodology for taping the program. I say this at the end of every season, but this time around, I mean it. We're really going to try and figure out some new way of recording the show so that some of these tonal shifts, as you point out, don't happen. Regarding having a couple guests on to thrash out something tangibly subjective, as you put it, I'm not exactly positive what you mean by that, but I kind of see where you're coming from. Bring on a couple people with different perspectives on the UFO phenomenon and have them discuss it. That's definitely a possibility, as I was laughing about with Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman a few weeks ago. You know, we finally have mastered this 1993 technology of dual guests, so it's only a matter of time before you hear the first ever BOA Audio esoteric debate regarding some subject in the world of esoterica. That's something I'm turning over to you folks. What would you like to see as the first ever BOA Audio debate? Definitely something I would like to do in Season 5, our first ever debate. So if folks want to have either, you know, a debate or a meeting of the minds, if you will, I think that would be really cool as well. Send me your suggestions. What two guests do you want to hear on together at the same time? I'm interested in what the listeners want to hear. Finally, to wrap it all up, Australia, Tasmania, one of my favorite places for esoteric activity. If I had the money, I would already be in Australia. That's how much of a fan I am of the country and all the weird stuff that's gone on down there. So keep a lookout for me, Gerard. It's only a matter of time before BOA Audio stands for Banal of Australia Audio when I can make my way down under and check out your amazing country. Thanks for writing in again, Gerard. Stay tuned, and I promise I'm going to work on fixing up the audio for the program. I don't want your ears crackling, my friend, unless they're crackling from some wild esoteric material. Up next, technical difficulties from Magpie. This is not Mag who was upset with my language, so don't worry about that. We're not double dipping here on the listener email. Here's what Magpie has to say. No hometown listed. She's having some trouble with the show. Just tried to listen to the Timothy Good interview, and it is only 25 seconds long when played on iTunes or Flash Player. Do you know of this problem? Just thought I'd give you a heads up, as I'm really looking forward to listening to the program. Please have a look at the link. Your show's rock. Keep up the good work. Hope to hear the show again, Magpie. Now, I looked into Magpie's issue, and I'm 99% positive this is what was going on. I'll be honest with you, folks. We were slammed last Tuesday with listeners for the Timothy Good episode, and I'm sure that's what the problem was. I'm talking in the thousands of people trying to listen to the episode. When you're running only out of one server, that really slows down the whole process for people who are trying to listen to it via streaming audio. We do have a note there on the website advising people that, you know, if you're having trouble listening to it, chances are we're getting slammed, and I'm 99% positive that was the case because I went over there Pretty soon after Magpie wrote to me, and it was working just fine for me, and I only got one email about it, and that was from Magpie. So my suggestion is, as always, if you're having trouble listening to the streaming audio, first go and download the MP3. That's probably your safest way of making sure that you're getting the pristine and complete episode. Or just come on back a day or so later. Chances are the massive amount of listeners will have subsided enough where you'll be able to hear the whole episode without having it break up or pause because so many people are trying to listen to it at the same time. As we bring in these superstar guests, as we have these massive interviews, you're going to have to be patient sometimes. We're a 
under the radar operation. We are a grassroots program. We are running really on duct tape and unwrapped paper clips at this point. So sometimes we're going to have a little trouble getting our message out to you because so many people want to hear it. Thanks for writing in, Magpie. I presume you have heard the Timothy Good episode since you wrote to me. I hope you enjoyed it as well. That wraps up our two emails here this week. Gerard in Tasmania, Australia. Magpie, no hometown listed. Thanks for writing in. I appreciate it. Chances are, since next week is the final BOA Audio listener feedback segment of the season, I use the final episode's end cap to thank all the great listeners and guests. We're really not going to get a chance to read too many emails at the end of the program, but I do want to hear from all the great listeners. So just because you're not going to get your email read on the show doesn't mean... I don't want to hear what you have to say. This is the best time of the season to contact me with who you want to hear on the program because we have an open book for Season 5 right now. Could be anybody on the show. Could be your favorite esoteric researcher. So send me their name and let me know who I should have on the program. I've already been inundated with people having suggestions for the comic book guests. So I'd say that's a pretty likely thing that's going to happen in season five and once again another example of how the listeners of this program drive the machine you guys tell me what you want to hear and we'll do our best to make it happen that's what we want you to do right now how do you contact me simple if you listen to the program frequently you know the process but i'll do it once again here for folks who may be listening for the first time ever there's three methods first you can write to me via email at boaaudio at hotmail.com pretty simple or you go to the website, you click the contact button, just as simple. That'll put you on the road to contacting me. And if you want to go a little more interactive and get into some discussions on some of these episodes, you simply go to the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Register, it's free. Dive into the USOB.com, post your thoughts on the various episodes, and we'll discuss them with you at the USOB. We'd love to have you there. Those are the methods, email, contact button, forum. There's no excuse for you not to get in touch with me if you have something to say about the program. Questions, comments, critiques, guest suggestions, topic suggestions. I want to hear it all, and I try my best to write back to everybody that writes to me. So I'm not just going to blow you off if you write an email to me. I promise I'll get back to you. Up next, you know what it is. It's time for the thanks portion of the show. Kudos and a tip of the cap to the amazing BOA staff. Let me roll through the list here. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Seniuk, and A.M. Murphy. They are amazing. They are really kicking in some awesome stuff for the website. Let me plug some of their columns that have been posted at BOA since the last time you heard from me. For starters, Regan Lee's Trickster's Realm, fun with Lucha Libre's esoteric side, a look at the emphasis on masks in Mexican wrestling. Very enjoyable column there from Regan Lee. After that, it was Leslie's Gray Matters, titled Fantasy vs. Reality, talking about hallucinations and how a lot of people seem to blame esoteric events on hallucinations. But Leslie really questions the nature of hallucinations. It's a heady edition of Gray Matters, definitely one you want to check out, Fantasy vs. Reality. And finally, this past Friday, we posted at the website Medusa's Ladder by Rochelle Hawks, deconstructing the dolphin-headed fake drug dealer. This is just an amazing story. Guy running around New York, a performance artist. He's dealing fake drugs while dressed as a dolphin. Mind-blowing stuff, once again, from Rochelle Hawks. Awesome material there in Medusa's Ladder. 
deconstructing the dolphin-headed fake drug dealer. So there you go, three new columns from the great BOA staff. We say it week in and week out, and it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns up in all of America, you're only getting half the story. So many different esoteric elements that I don't get a chance to cover here on the program. They cover in-depth and in fascinating perspectives at the website. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And for those of you who don't know how to spell the website URL, that's pretty simple. It is www.binnallofamerica.com. Check it out. What you heard tonight was episode number 32 of 34 total episodes for BOA Audio Season 4, the longest season we've ever produced here for you all. And even more amazing, I look back as we finished taping all of the interviews for the season this past Wednesday, August 12th, and I was stunned really to see that we kicked off the taping for Season 4 way back on September 17th, 2008, so really over 330 days long the production of this season has been, and really by the time we wrap up the season at the end of August, we're going to be damn near 50 weeks long that we've been either producing episodes for you or putting the shows out to you on a weekly basis. Trust me, when I'm not putting out the episodes, I'm doing the research and I'm doing the legwork to put together more and more great episodes. So just because I'm down for a month and we're not putting out any shows for you doesn't mean we're not working on the program. What does this all mean? It means that I've spent the last year working on an amazing array of esoteric interviews for all of the great BOA Audio listeners, and that costs money. Not just the 34 interviews, but just the time that it takes and the bandwidth that all of the great listeners all over the world use up as they're downloading the episodes, as they're listening to the shows. How do I pay for all that? At first, of course, it comes out of my pocket, and at times the cost can be borderline crippling, folks. And that's why we turn to you amazing listeners who have some disposable income to make a donation to the program. How do you do that? That's simple. You go to Benalla of America or the BOA Audio Archive page, click the PayPal button, they'll walk you through the process, and then you can make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benalla of America and BOA Audio in order to keep the program and the website up and running, freely available, and ad-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program... It is the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 4. It is the second-to-last program you're going to hear from us here in this fourth season of the show. I'm very excited about this interview. I really enjoyed conducting it, and I can't wait to unleash it upon the great BOA Audio listeners. We're going to be welcoming the legendary and iconic Bud Hopkins to the program. Our conversation is going to be centering around his recently published memoirs, art, life, and UFOs, and we're going to be exploring and discussing his remarkable and epic life. Chances are this is going to be an interview unlike you've ever heard with Bud Hawkins on other esoteric programs, because the first half of this nearly two-hour conversation revolves around his amazing career as an artist, which is discussed in his memoirs. In the early portion of the interview, Bud's going to extrapolate on observations he makes in the book about the aspects of color in relation to nature artists and their disinterest with politics, his near fight with Jack Kerouac in the 1950s, why he chose to change mediums from paint to sculpture later in his career, why he dubbed some of his work to be failures, 
the problem with museums today, and much, much more. As I noted to Bud when we taped the interview so many times in Esoterica, when you're hearing about Bud Hopkins, his career as an artist is often undersold. That's not going to be the case here when you hear from Bud Hopkins on BOA Audio. We really pay a lot of attention to his tremendous career as an artist. It definitely deserves recognition, and we talk about it at length in the beginning of the program. The second half, of course, focuses on Bud's pioneering work in the field of abduction research. We're going to find out how hearing War of the Worlds shaped the populace who heard it, including a young Bud Hopkins, why the nature of ET interactions seem to go from contactees to abductees, the concept of confirmation anxiety and how it affects those who have been abducted, his take on the ETs as robots theory, the nature of hybrid revelations to abductees, and if it is an ongoing process or a one-time thing, some insight into the Shirley MacLaine meeting that is detailed in the book, framing the UFO-slash-ET question for the mass public in this modern time, Bud's feelings on the portrayal of abductions in mass media, and, of course, tons and tons more. It is an enlightening interview which aims to capture the massive scope of one man's life, Bud Hopkins, artist and esoteric legend. That's next week on the program. In two weeks, the legendary and infamous John Lear. I'm going to talk more about that at the end of next week's show because I've damn near lost my voice here. Closing out this week's edition of the program, come on back next week for Bud Hopkins talking about art, life, and UFOs. It's an interview you definitely do not want to miss. And on that note, we close the book here on another edition of BOA Audio. I'm exhausted. Hopefully you're not exhausted from listening to too much of me here at the end of the show. Don't forget to check out the bonus audio here for this week's edition of the program. I was going to tack it on at the end of the episode, but I decided just to post it to the podcast feed and link up to it on the show page. An extra hour and 20 minutes, the lost interview with Webster Tarbley on BOA Audio from 2005. You definitely want to check that out. I'd be willing to bet that the vast majority of our listeners did not even know this interview existed. So go on and check out that classic edition of BOA Audio with Webster Tarbley to get a little bit more from the geopolitical genius himself. Once again, thanks to Webster Tarpley, and as always, thank you to the amazing BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. We would not be doing this program without you, and I thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Manal, thanking you for listening and signing off.